Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. As you're finding that, where we left off a couple weeks ago in our journey through John, praise God for Tyler's message last week on Acts chapter 9 and the conversion of Paul. If you miss that, go to our website. I encourage you to listen to that. And praise God for Herb and Evelyn. I love that. So thankful for this couple and God's grace in their lives. In uh, parliamentary procedure, Robert's Rules of Orders, sometimes in congressional hearings, such formal occasions, is that after there's been a lot of debate about this, that, and whatever, sometimes people will stand up and they will say, I, I call for the question. In other words, enough debate. We've talked about it long enough. What's the issue and where do we stand on it? And in our text this morning, this beautiful story of Jesus healing this paralyzed man who had been paralyzed for 38 years and was dragging himself daily to this pool that they superstitiously thought would heal him if they could get in it. After all of that, Jesus comes, wades through the crowd, and Jesus doesn't just call for a question, he asks a most peculiar question. And we're going to look at this story today. All right, here's my plan. I'm going to read through this. We're going to comment a few things just to orient us to the scene. And then I want us to think about uh, what this story means, what this scene means, and how we can apply it to our lives. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, you've been so kind to us. Thank you for this first Sunday of June. Thank you for the table that we will celebrate as a church family where we will come and receive communion together after we feast on your word. Lord, show us your grace. Let us see Jesus this morning. That's what we need. We don't need to be entertained. We don't need our preferences reinforced. We don't need our ears to be tickled. We need to come face to face with Jesus through his word. Or do your work with your word, I pray, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, chapter 5. After this, remember we had just gone through chapter 4 where he had healed the, where he had engaged the Samaritan woman there at the well, and then he healed this official son, and so after a certain amount of time, picking back up, verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. Bethesda, this Hebrew Aramaic word that just means the house of mercy, which has five roofed colonnades. Now why that detail? Just a little tidbit here. I don't think this is particularly spiritually significant. But when the Bible mentions these historical details like this, it just reinforces the veracity, the truthfulness, the detail of the Bible. And, and century after century, there will be more archaeological evidence that just confirms the Bible. And so when you see something like that, it's not insignificant. That In fact, that very place, this, this place, this pool, this sheep gate, these 
colonnades, these roof colonnades have actually been discovered, confirming here John's just casual reference to them. Verse 3, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then in verse 5, it says one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now most of you, I think probably a lot of you are reading from the ESV as I am, and you'll notice that there's a verse 3 that tells us that there's a multitude of invalids, a multitude of people that are sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed, and then it goes to verse 5. So why is there no verse 4? And you might notice in your Bible, if it's a reference Bible or a study Bible, there might be a little footnote there that will give you in the margins or at the bottom of the page what, has, uh, what, what is the end of verse 3 in many versions of the Bible and a verse 4. And let me read that. Verse, second half of verse 3, waiting for the moving of the water. Verse 4, then, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after, stirring, after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So why is there no verse 4 maybe in the manuscript or the copy of the Bible that you are reading from today? Well, the reason why is that the earliest manuscripts that we have of the transmission of the Bible, and what do I mean by manuscripts? So we have the Apostle John who is either writing or, or orally dictating the first copy of the Gospel of John to a scribe who's writing it down. And we have that first copy that actually existed in history. Now, of course, that physical document doesn't exist anymore. And it was, it was copied, it was transmitted time after time after time in the early centuries, all throughout the early centuries before we had the printing press. And the earliest, and praise God, we have actually discovered and found many very early, not the originals, but many very early manuscripts of these books of the Bible. And the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John do not include the second half of verse 3 and verse 4. And so that's why, at least in the ESV rendering of this, that is not included. Now, what's going on with the other copies, the later copies, that do have this verse 4? Well, that's probably, very likely, a scribe or somebody maybe 10 years later, 50 years later, 100 years later, that was tasked with copying the Gospel of John, and he inserted this verse 4, not in an effort to change the Bible, but just as a kind of footnote, almost a kind of commentary to explain the situation that's going on, a kind of common superstition that the people held about this. Now, on the surface, we may think, oh, well, this is, does this somehow threaten the reliability of the Scriptures? No, it actually increases it because there are several places in the Bible where there are these variants or variations of copies between the earliest manuscripts and later manuscripts. And there will be these variations. And a, crit a critique oftentimes of an unbelieving world is, oh, you see there's contradictions or there's variations in the copies of the Bible. Well, actually, the fact that we know of all these variations which were very likely just additions by a scribe to help his readers understand, the fact that we understand that those weren't part of the original but additions later on actually 
strengthens our view that we know that we have what John actually wrote. Because in all of the very few instances all throughout the Bible where there are these variations in manuscripts, we know exactly what they are. And we know that these variations were often later editions. And oh, by the way, these variations don't affect the eternal truths of the Bible in any way. And so that's what verse 4 is. And in fact, we'll get to verse 7 in a moment where it's probably alluding to this superstition that this scribe likely added verse 4 for some copies of the Bible. Okay, uh, academic college class over. I just wanted you to understand why you, your Bible may not have a verse 4. So there are these multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Brothers and sisters, embedded in this sentence is a whole lot of pain and suffering. 38 years this man has been in this condition, very likely paralyzed, maybe from the waist down. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? What a question. I love the King James Version, wilt thou be made whole? Do you want to be healed? Well, on one level, of course. Why, why would this guy be dragging himself to this pool that there was this superstition that he could be healed by the waters because an angel came down every now and again and stirred the waters? Why would Jesus even ask this question? It almost seems sort of cruel. Well, of course he wants to be healed. Well, we'll more on that in a moment. In verse 7, the sick, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. So that's probably alluding to this superstition that the scribe, maybe years later, felt the need to explain by inserting verse 4, which doesn't show up in the earliest manuscripts. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So clearly this man does not understand who he's talking to. He doesn't know that he's talking to Jesus or that Jesus has asked him the question. And this is just a reminder that, friends, our circumstances of life can become so huge and so acute and so seemingly insurmountable that they can cloud out and overwhelm our perspective, even to the point where we can't really even hear Jesus. In verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now let's pause there and just think about this for a minute. I just, just notice the miracles in the Gospels, especially in John, there's, there's seven signs that John record seven miraculous events signs healings the feeding of the multitudes that we'll get to in in uh, chapter 6 and the, the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11 and this is one of the seven signs the, the healing of this this lame man but notice the simplicity I mean the miracle happens somewhere in the dead space between 8 verse 8 and verse 9 get up take up your bed and walk and at once boom the man's healed there's no there's no chance there's no hullabaloo, there's, there's no mood music, there's nothing. 
There's no candles burning. Jesus says it, and it happens. It's just the miracles are so, so common. They're so indescript. They're just boom. Jesus is there, and he has authority. He doesn't need to wave his hands. He doesn't need a big commotion. He just has simple authority and power to absolutely change this man's physical and ultimately spiritual state. I just want you to notice the immediacy of this miracle. And notice also, then, that this is the beginning. We're not going to get so much into this today, but as we progress through chapter 5 and all the way, uh, really, through John, this is the beginning of the direct and more public opposition to Jesus. And he, the, the writer John inserts there, after at the end of verse 9, or the second half of verse 9, he just notes for us that this was the Sabbath. And so there's this tension mounting. How, how can you... How can you do this on the Sabbath is what these religious leaders were saying in verse 10. They said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful. Now look at the sentence there. They say, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Well, wait a minute now. What does the Old Testament actually say about the Sabbath? It says that you can't do work on the Sabbath. So unless this guy was a professional mat carrier, which is possible, but I doubt, it's technically not breaking the Sabbath for this man to take up his mat and walk. And so what's going on here? This is the critique that Jesus has for the religious leaders of his day. And he says this in Mark chapter 7 and verse 8. He says of these religious leaders that they leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And so what was happening in first century Judaism is that these religious leaders were taking the Old Testament law and in their desire to sort of make themselves more religiously powerful, they orchestrated an addition to the law of God, which was called the tradition of men, and they put it on the people. They made it extra hard hard for the people to obey God. And it was this tradition of men, these additions onto the requirements of the Old Testament law, and it became a way of the religious leaders being power brokers and authority over the people. Oh, well, you can't do that, you can't do that. And there, here they are adding to this Sabbath law by saying you can't even pick up your mat and walk, which was not part of the law. And this is the beginning of tension between Jesus and the religious leaders in a more public way. Verse 11, but he answered them, this is the man that had been healed. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So they asked him, who is this? And just, you know, I, this, this man was not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I mean, I just, I, you know, the Bible is often very it, it, it just gives us minimal details, and I think it's, it, it's dangerous to sort of read into it too much. But let me just take a little liberty here and say that if you have been, if you have been invalid, if you've been paralyzed for 38 years, and somebody comes to you, tells you to get up, pick up your mat and walk, at some point in that brief exchange, don't you think you'd get a name? And here this guy is. He answered them, I, I don't know. The man who healed me, 
That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, verse 12, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. Remarkably so. I want to meet this guy someday in heaven. And I, and I actually want to be, I, I'm encouraged by this guy because you know what? You know what? I've said this before. Jesus loves butter knives. Right? You got, you got, you got some knives are made for steak and some knives are made for butter. Most of us are pretty dull. All the sharp people out there just letting everybody know how sharp they are. But these butter knives are so dumb they don't even know to ask Jesus his name. And yet he's great. He's merciful to people who are just dull. Praise God for that. Maybe I'm reading into this. If I'm wrong, let it fall to the ground. But I'm sort of taken by the fact that this guy didn't have the wherewithal to even know who healed him. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Whoa, verse 14. Listen, he catches up to this guy who seems to kind of be selling him out. Well, I don't know. It's this guy's. Well, I don't even know who it was. Don't blame me. I'm not the Sabbath lawbreaker here, which, by the way, wasn't really a law-breaking Sabbath. It's just a religious system of the Pharisees. And he's kind of like, I don't know, whatever. And Jesus finds him in the temple later on, and he says, you're well, sin no more. Now we're getting to the real purpose of the interaction with Jesus. Sin no more. And then Jesus says something that's kind of haunting here. He says that nothing worse may happen to you, and we'll get into this in a second, but Jesus seems to tie his condition, his suffering for 38 years to his sin. And he clearly alludes that there is something worse than suffering for 38 years as an invalid. And I think Jesus is referencing here ultimate, ultimate separation from God for eternity for not being made right with him, having your sins not forgiven before a holy God. That's worse than anything you can imagine. In verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered, answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Well, there's much to get into there in verse 17, which picks up the theme of the rest of the chapter, chapter that we'll get into in the coming weeks. But for now, just know that the opposition is starting to mount against Jesus. He's a threat to the religious order. But I want us to focus on this question, this interaction between Jesus and this man at the edge of the pool there. And I want us to think of just three, three things. I want us to notice three things. I want us to notice the sinner. I want us to notice the Savior and then the salvation. Very briefly, before we come to the Lord's table, the sinner, the Savior, and the salvation. First, just think about this, this man. Consider his situation. He had been lame for 38 years, and, and he is seemingly, like a lot of people there, I think, a victim of strange religious superstition. That if you just get to this pool where the, this angel, and, and, and you know, there's a lot of debate. Was that actually something that had happened in the first century? Was there a real angel? 
I tend to believe that it was, that it was just a superstition. And I think a lot of people are caught up in religious superstition. A kind of works-based, merit-based system of, I will just do this, then it will, it will go well for me. And this man had been caught in that for 38 years. I mean, you talk about pain and hopelessness. This man is a picture of the inadequacy of human effort. He's a picture of all of us on some level before grace comes to us, before Christ comes to us. And notice the link, and Jesus makes this link in verse 14 when he says, sin no more that nothing worse may come upon you. Notice the clear link that John the Apostle is wanting to draw between, now we need to be careful here, John is drawing our attention between a link between his suffering, his condition, and his sin. Now what are we to make of this? Now we need to step back for a moment and say, that not always is there a direct link between our suffering and our sin. In fact, we're going to get to John chapter 9, eventually, where there is this man who is born blind. And the religious leaders are talking about this man who is born blind as if he is a science experiment openly in public. And they're saying, Jesus, they bring this poor guy who's been born blind to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents? that he's like this. I mean, what a terrible thing to do. You talk about not being very couth socially. What a horrible thing to do. Hey, Jesus, we got this exhibit from the zoo. Tell us what type of monkey this is. That's what they're doing for this man. And Jesus says to them, I'm preaching John chapter 9 before we get there. Forgive me for just a moment. But I'm making the point that Jesus says in John chapter 9 of this man who had suffered with blindness that this man isn't, he's not sinning, his parents aren't sinning, but he was born this way so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. So we cannot make a direct connection all the time that all of our suffering is directly linked to our personal sin. Sometimes it is though. We see that clearly the implication here in John chapter 5. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll just summarize it. I'm just thinking this because we're going to come to the Lord's table. And when the Apostle Paul in the first century church in 1 Corinthians 11 is giving instruction to the church about coming to the Lord's table, he actually tells the Corinthian church who was caught up in carnality and selfishness, Paul says this to them. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says that you guys are being so selfish that, that God is taking some of you out. That's why some of you have died, because you're preferring yourself over one another when you come to the Lord's table. So what can we make of this? Well, sometimes there is a direct link between our sin and our suffering. Sometimes there isn't, as in John 9. The point I think we need to take from this is that we all live in a fallen world, whether it's a direct link or whether it's an indirect link, all suffering on some level, either directly or indirectly, is a result of Genesis 3 and this fallen world that we live in. But don't miss the point. The point, I think, of this in this text is that Jesus is warning this man that there's something worse than suffering physically in this life. And it's being separated from God for eternity. That's the point of verse 14. I noticed just something else about this man before we move on to look at the Savior. Just notice his, uh, no, I, want, I want to be tender here, but I, I, I feel this f for my own soul. 
And generally, pastorally, I've learned over the years that that means it probably needs to be said to some of you as well. Notice this man's self-pity. Jesus asks him the question, and what does he say there in, in verse in verse 7, he says, Jesus said, you want to be made whole. Will you be healed? He doesn't even answer the question. He just offers an excuse. Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Just notice his posture. Friends, the world is broken. We live with broken people. Things aren't fair. In fact, I believe one of the great witnesses of the Bible and the Christian message and the reason why I think it is so evidently true is because it is the only religious thought system, the only true perspective that actually correctly identifies the human condition. We are fallen and we need a Savior. And when we understand the doctrine of the fallenness of man, we understand the world that we live in. The world's broken. People are wicked. It's the only view that really makes sense. And we see this man who, many of us are like this, we get caught up in this sort of strange disappointment because we have a kind of idol that the world owes us something and it doesn't. We feel sorry for ourselves. And that pervasive view, that sort of Self-centered view is more acceptable now in our culture than ever before. The culture that we live in, the world that we live in, the number one commodity that they will sell our souls is victimization status. And on some level, that may be true. Maybe you didn't have the greatest dad. Maybe you're suffering some systematic injustice. Maybe your first sergeant is a jerk. Most First sergeants are, except for the ones in this church. (laughs) Maybe your spouse isn't all they should be. That's not the question. That's assumed. When you're looking at a a geometry, you know, when you're doing that math, you got the givens, this is the angle, whatever. That's given, we know. Daddy wasn't all he was supposed to be. (laughs) Your boss isn't who he should be. Yes, there's injustice. The question is, will you be made whole? We live in a broken world. Let's not waste time being victims. Yes, Jesus is so more infinitely, unfathomably compassionate than we can ever imagine. Do not hear me say that Jesus is not tenderhearted. He is rich in mercy, richer than we can ever even comprehend. But the question is, will you be made whole? Not, was your daddy good? Not, have you suffered some injustice? Yes, of course you have, a thousand times yes. Will you be made whole is the question. Friends, we are not... We are not, at least vertically speaking, in our relationship with the Holy God, primarily victims. We are perpetrators. We live in a broken world with broken systems and broken people. And I believe that this sign is recorded as the one of signs, one of the seven greatest hits that John decides to recording his gospel of all the things that he could have recorded Jesus doing, we are to see ourselves as this man. We are not bystanders saying, oh, how nice of Jesus to heal this guy who had such a tough time. 
We are this man on one level or another. We are given to self-pity. We are giving to a woes me attitude. But the question remains, not, oh my, look at all these things that have happened to you. But will you be made whole? Which leads us to the Savior. We've looked at the sinner. Let's look at the Savior. Notice how he comes. He, He doesn't need to be invited. He doesn't need anything in this man. There's no prerequisites that are met. He comes. He comes. He wades through the crowd. And he comes. Why did he come to this man? Why this man? I believe, I'm just speculating here, but I believe he comes to this man because this man was the worst case scenario at the pool that day. Jesus comes uninvited. The wind of the Spirit, the movement of God, blows where it wills. Friends, this is so encouraging. There's no raw material that Jesus needed in this man. He didn't need any hope in him. He didn't need anything in him. He comes to him uninvited. And he comes to this man who had been there for 38 years. Why this man? Why him? Why this hopeless case? Why this dull butter knife? Why this guy who doesn't even have enough wherewithal to ask who healed him? Why this guy who just seems beyond hope because to show us, I believe, that no one is beyond his reach. No situation is too desperate. Jesus saw him and he sees us. Friends, see yourself in this. The Lord knows. Go home this afternoon and and read Psalm 139. He knows when you rise up and when you lie down. He knows when you ascend into heaven in your most glorious of days. And he knows when you descend into the depths of hell, metaphorically speaking. He sees you. He saw your unframed substance before one day was created, even before you existed in your mother's womb. He has ordained every one of your days before they they have come to be. He knows you. He knows you. He knows you. He knows this man, and he, he knows us. And he asks this man this most peculiar of questions. Do you want to be healed? <laughs> well, of course, Jesus. But he doesn't even really understand the question. Friends, he's not just asking this man. He's asking you and me. Will you be made whole? Which leads us to the salvation. This final look before we come to the table. What is Jesus really offering this man? Is is it just mere physical healing? Another couple decades of wholeness? Praise God for that. I don't want to minimize that at all. But it's something so much bigger, so much greater, so much more eternal. It's not physical healing. It's, It's spiritual wholeness. Why is this miracle, this sign recorded so that we can know that Jesus merely can heal an invalid or reverse paralysis? Well, yeah, sure, but there's something much deeper going on. Jesus is calling for the question, and he's calling for it for all of us. Will you be made whole? 
Friends, we live in a world of excuse makers. And even those of us that are believers are are professional excuse makers. We want to talk. We want to debate. We want to filibuster. We want to lobby on the Senate floor. And Jesus stands up and he says, I'm calling for the question, will you be made whole? Will you break that habit? Will you turn your ways? Will you follow me? Will you be fruitful? Will you live for me? Will you give your life to me? Will you serve me? Will you do something for the Lord? Will you be made whole? And friends, I know, I know the doctrine of salvation. I understand, and I understand that in the sovereignty of God, I understand that he, but friends, he's asking you right now. He's asking all of us right now, will you be made whole? Will you? We need to meet Jesus face to face. We, we, we don't come to him with excuses. We have become so comfortable in our modern American Christianity that we need everything right. And when things aren't right, we get together and complain about how things aren't right. Oh, well, if this church would have done that. Oh, well, if that boss would have done this. Oh, well, if my wife or my husband would have done this. If my kids would only do that. If my boss, all this, call for the question, will you, will you be made whole? It's you and Jesus right now. Will you be made whole? Will he be enough? Does he have the power? Is he the one that can satisfy? Will we keep making excuses or will we meet Jesus face to face and will we look him in the eye and will we blot out all of our excuses and all of our self-pity and all the injustice around us and will we hear the question called for us today, will you be made whole? Will you be made whole? Will you know him? Will you grab a hold of your Savior? And will you get up? And will you make your life about him? That, that's, that's the question. That's the question. Friends, we're coming now to receive communion as a church family. And as we take this bread and this cup, let it not just be a perfunctory, monthly, religious tradition. We're coming to take the Lord's bread and his cup and to remember that because of what Jesus has done on the cross through his death, that he has borne the wrath of God for us. And that he spilled his blood and he's given us a new covenant of grace. And we come now to feast on this little meal. Friends, this is a meal for believers. This is for Christians. So it's for those who have put their hope in the death and resurrection of Christ. And if you're not a believer, you should, you should refrain from partaking of this meal until you come to faith in Jesus. And if you are a believer... As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11, you should examine your heart so that you can partake of this in a worthy manner. And what does it mean to be a worthy participant? Not that you come with your week full of righteous deeds, but that you come repentant, trusting afresh, knowing that you can only be made whole, that Jesus alone will satisfy, that he's the one that we need. That's what it means to come worthily. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and the worship team is going to lead us in a song. And then when you are ready, if you are a believer, 
want you to come and receive the little cup with the wafer on the top and the juice and receive the elements. And I want you to hold them. And then Robert is going to lead us to receive these elements together. And he's going to lead us in a little bit of a different way. We're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together, affirming what we believe. And he's going to lead us in a time of, of silence and reflection. Where I want us to answer the question that's being called for us today. Well, is that where my hope is? Can Jesus make me whole? Is he afresh all that I need? And then he's going to lead us to receive the bread and the cup together. Friends, Jesus has called for the question, will you, will we be made whole? Let me pray. Lord, help us. We don't want to sit over your word just merely to understand it and examine it and think how sweetly it applies to somebody else. We want to sit under it. We want to drink from it. We want to be washed by it. We want not to so much understand it as be defined by it and reordered by it. Lord, we confess that we are a we're all professional excuse makers. We love our self-pity because it makes us feel good. It helps us accuse other people, justify ourselves. That's not the question this morning. The question is, will we meet you face to face? Will we experience your wholeness? Will we follow you? Will we taste true healing? Will we know you? Will we be satisfied with you? Or as we come to this table, reorient all of us, I pray. And may we all answer that question. Yes, we want to be healed. We want to be made whole. In Jesus' name.